Hello and welcome to Best of Back to Britpop Part 1. It's me, Chris. I just thought I'd put some episodes together to highlight some of the guests we've had over the series. Um, it's been an amazing journey for me. I've managed to speak to so many artists and bands from from the 90s and from the Britpop era. And I really appreciate your support, those who've listened and subscribed and written reviews, contributed to my Ko-Fi page. If you want to, you can buy me a virtual coffee. It's £3. Uh, the links are in the show notes and support me on social media by searching for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and uh, Twitter. That's the one. Also, if you can and you have time, please write a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe and rate on iTunes because I know I say it every week, but it really helps raise the profile of the podcast and get sort of charted if you like. But in the meantime, here's a bit more from the guests and there'll be more episodes to come over the coming weeks. Thanks again for your support. We were at the point where we were getting a little bit of a name banded about. I think we'd got ourselves in number five in the in enemy's top ten unsigned bands list and all of this. So we kind of were starting to get a bit excited. But we live in York, and you know the industry is in London, so to speak. So you yeah. know we would find ourselves we, at this point we were all kind of working because we'd just left school, um, and we'd find ourselves hiring a minibus getting a friend to drive it, sticking all the equipment on the seats on the back and having snares on our laps and guitars on our laps and driving the four or five hour journey to London after taking a day off work to do a gig in front of about three people <laughs> at um, Kentish Town. Um, I was going to say the Kentish Town Forum, but that's a massive venue, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, the, the dog and duck, basically. You know, yeah, yeah. playing the dog and duck in front of two or three people and then you'd pack your gear away and put it back in the minivan and then drive the five hours back home through the night to get home in time to get up and go to work at seven in the morning. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that that destroys a lot of bands, but we never let that... We knew that if we just carried on just really flogging that horse, it will move, you know. And luckily it did. So when you, when you um, had those first sort of meetings with sort of A&R and, and sort of record companies, there must have been some sort of relief that sort of um surged through the band and so this is this is happening for us it, it must have been really exciting. yeah especially more so because we're from york and it, yeah. you know york's quite a small city so you know it got to the point where it was a bit silly we had five or six different labels caught in our interest and we were doing gigs for each different label in different various places and then we were kind of edging our bets um, but when we chose Polydor, which I mean, one of the main reasons we chose Polydor was because of just growing up and listening to those classic albums by The Jam and The Who, and they had that brilliant logo, Polydor logo on the front of every cover. Yeah. You know, we just wanted to be part of that. I don't know whether that was a mistake or not now looking back, but you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, but you know, I do remember, I do remember that when it was really kind of, oh God, was when probably late 93 we got on a train to go to london to sign the record deal it was all it was all done it was ready to be signed uh you know we'd spent months and months or maybe even years getting to this point and we got on a train in the afternoon from york and went down to london to sign it got to the polydor's offices and our lawyer was looking through it and discovered a, a technical hitch which meant we couldn't sign it. So we had to get back on the train and come all the way back to York, very despondent thinking, oh no, is, is, is it, are people going to lose interest? Is it not going to go, is it not going to happen? 
that was probably the most testing times in that respect. But then literally about a week later, we were, we were getting another train back and signing it for real. So all, all well, all's well, it ends well. But yes, there was that kind of a little bit of, oh no, you know, is yeah. this going to happen? Looking back at this this era, because I obviously said to you pre-record that we, we I wanted to explore Britpop as a concept and what it was like for bands on you know inside looking out. What did you think of it all? Did it all seem a bit ridiculous to you? So I, the the weird thing for me about Britpop is that it kind of caught me slightly by surprise because I think we put out Split in 94 and then we just toured that for the whole time and suddenly I just remember getting back from all this time being away and plus I just wanted to say that when we recorded Split we weren't in London we were off in Rockfield then we mixed it in France at Mike Hedges' studio so we were out of the country yeah. for like a large part of the time when all of this was taking off so I kind of remember just coming playing at Failure Festival or something, which I suppose was the summer of, would it have been 90, it would have been 94, so it was still, it was either 94 or 95, but anyway, the point is, is I just remember coming back to this festival and thinking, oh my God, this stuff has really, everything's kind of changed, what's going on? Yeah. Like, the, the atmosphere changed without us really being there the whole time, and so the next thing was, again, when we recorded Love Life, we were off in the studio. So I was going to gigs and I was seeing these bands and I did kind of enjoy the rise of it. I mean, I have to say I loved Pulp. I didn't think of them as a Britpop band though. You know, I went to see them. I mean, obviously they'd been going for years before Britpop. It wasn't till the kind of, you know, I suppose Elastica and and Echo Belly and, you know, so the bands that felt like they were new to, they were the spark, if you see what I mean, yeah, rather, yeah, than, yeah. rather than Blur, who'd obviously had a whole career before it as well. And, you know, mm. so it was that kind of wave where I suddenly thought, okay, so things have really changed. And I think, you know, I enjoyed it in as much as, you know, I don't know, going out dancing and mm. jumping about to, oasis or supergrass or whatever it was terrific fun you know but i think um that kind of the fun aspect of it which was much needed because i did think you know i think there was this sort of solemnity to a lot of bands and that kind of you know american grunge scene i know it's like well said that Britpop was a response to that and i get it that it was a bit navel gazy and what have you and and Britpop had this sort of energy and a kind of like let's just jump up and down and enjoy ourselves and stop being so serious. But I think the the sort of crap end of it didn't really hit me until we'd made Love Life and then we had to do all the press for it. Uh, lots of in-your-face kind of programming was happening at the time and all this kind of lad culture thing. that I, It was kind of like quite in-your-face, some of the interview styles of that era and specifically like um, some of the MTV shows. And it's so shoddily put together and it's it must have been quite just boring um being asked some of the ridiculous questions i just noticed like watching your interviews that it just seemed <laughs> so awful and I'm, I'm surprised you stuck them out was it that bad or around that sort of time you know to be honest with you interviews are always a bit you know some interviews are great but a lot of them are quite boring you know and that's just because you know, it's fair enough. I get it. I mean, we did loads of interviews in America when it was all the shoegazy stuff and you get these very earnest student types asking about Robin Guthrie and 4AD and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, anything you get asked a million times becomes boring. But 
you know, I understand. Hey, I'm not. I'm, they're doing their job. I'm not going to yeah. knock it. I think the difference with with Britpop was that you were expected to perform, and whereas even prior to Britpop, you know, there was a bit of a reputation that Lush had for, oh, you know, they're party animals and Nikki swears and ooh, you know, a girl <laughs> that swears, my God, stop the press or gets drunk mm. on cider or whatever the fuck it is, right? So, whereas that was seen as just a sort of you know, relatively quirky thing, but but totally acceptable because there's a punk scene where obviously loads of girls do that. It's not that unusual. Suddenly, in the Britpop era, era it became something to like really focus and capitalise on. And then it, it felt like, look, this isn't actually who I really am, you mm. know. It's interesting as an adjunct because, you know, people expect a 4AD band to be, I don't know, sit sort of listening to choral music and being vegans or something i don't know whatever and so it's amusing when you realize that the cocteau twins are a you know bunch of sweary scots boozers and the same same with lush you know mm -hmm. as being you know football and beer or whatever but suddenly when you've got the landscape of Britpop, where everybody is expected to play that part up mm. you know then it becomes really grating because you mm. think well this isn't something that i actually think is such an amazing thing you know, I don't really want to sit around talking about football at every interview. And that, I think, is really boring. You know, the mm. fun part is doing it. Who wants to sit around talking about how much they fucking drink all the time? Yeah, yeah. Like, and how much they swear and how laddish they are. And I don't know. I, and I just sort of realised that it, it was suddenly getting really, like, sexualised as well. Mm -hmm. Like, this makes you, like, some sort of dream shag because you're a girl that's willing to act like one of the lads, but still, you know, be all pouty and sexy. Mm. And that really pissed me off, actually. So yeah. <laughs> when did you decide to, I mean, there's obviously other, other, other things that happened to the band, but th was this a real kind of era for you where you, th sorry, those, those points you've touched on, were they really kind of extreme enough for you to want to maybe just to turn away from it all? I think that, to be honest, I mean, I think definitely that that really grated. I mean, you know, the thing to remember is we did always have a quite a good American base. So, you know, you could sort of get away from all of that a bit by yeah. touring in America. Unfortunately, with that last album, I think we were being pushed to playing America again and again and again and again. And, you know, one of the positive things of Britpop was never mind all the kind of laddish posturing, but it did actually make Europe a lot more open, you know, a, mm. and, you know, we, we did play Paris and it was packed and, you know, suddenly there was all these European gigs and festivals and we could have done them, but, you know, we kept getting back, dragged back to America because to management and, you know, whatever, I mean, that's the golden ticket, isn't it? If you make it there, then you're kind of, you're yeah. done really. But, it's exhausting. It's an exhausting country to tour. As lovely as it is to play there, it's huge and it really takes it out of you. And I think, sorry, just to get back to your answer, was that for Emma in particular, who wasn't someone who massively enjoyed touring, I think both of those things, the kind of Britpop playing up to this sort of, you know, more pop-centred image and the kind of that kind of press and coupled with the endless efforts to break into America. That was definitely for her. I, I'm not doing this anymore, which I totally get. 
and you know she she did reach the end of her tether and we had a meeting just you know before it all really fell apart and Mm -hmm. and I did say it's fine I agree with you let's let's just I you know I would happily record an album of fucking 17th century choral chants (laughs) or anything you know or some Mm. acid jazz you know noodling if that's what you want to do I actually don't care but I just think it's really important to keep the band together but then yes well then we had the whole Chris disaster so that was that but I, I do think yeah I think there was I genuinely think that the next Lush album would have been very much more of a, you know, if not a completely different album, then certainly a much more of a return to the more soundscapey, that kind of side of the band. Those early gigs, as my life story, were taking shape in the sort of the early form or the proper sort of fully fledged form. What were they like? Or what could you feel from the audience? Was there something tangible happening? You could feel it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I was known uh, in Camden uh, in my early 20s, first and foremost, as the, the, the bloke that did flyers for the, all the clubs. So I, I moved from designing flyers for, for Dingwalls exclusively, then to doing flyers for the Cannon Palace, to do flyers for Blow Up. I actually designed the Blow Up logo um, for, you know, obviously one of Britport's most famous clubs. And so I was doing artwork for everybody. I was going, I, w- I was seeing so many gigs that it, it, it's probably quite hard that the, the gradations of moving into, into what you, you call specifically Britpop is, is got, it's much harder for me to, to explain yeah. because obviously there was no sort of big wow moment. Like mm. apparently everybody saw the Ramones at the roundhouse in 1970. <laughs> before punk or yeah, all the yeah. people that were at the pistols concert at manchester including uh, mick hucknall oh. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um so i don't think Britpop really had that i mean what i will say is that you know there was definitely in london you know i, I can only really speak for the for the london side of Britpop. a lot of people were getting into sort of maybe moving into into fashions because grunge was an anti-fashion and because free rave festivals and that sort of dressing down and camping out thing you know there was Mm. there was definitely there definitely felt like you know I was I was bumping into people in thrift shops in Camden and quite a lot I mean I I, one of the very first um, pieces written about me in the Melody Maker was a journalist um, just happened to spot me in Sainsbury's in Camden and I was wearing a boating blazer and had um, my grandmother's cane that had a duck head on it and I ended up being in the, I think, I think I got in the, in the, in the just because of that. So yeah, I think there was just, there, there were obviously people around. I, I, I didn't know anybody. I, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't sort of hanging around with these bands. It wasn't until Paul, uh, my good friend, Paul, who's also from, uh, Paul Tunkin from South End, who, who set up Blow Up in Camden and, and then started to meet some of the other bands there. Um, that, that I felt, you know, there were some kindred spirits out there. Mm. I, I, I have to be honest, I think probably the clubs probably did, in the very, very early era, um, probably did more than the gigs. I don't think we were going to each other's gigs so much as sort of meeting at the clubs. The Milo Street fan base at that time was, was still a mixture of friends, curious people, um, and obviously people I'd met through designing flyers for the clubs and stuff like that. So, you know, something I haven't really given much thought, really, but, but mm. I think it Probably, um, yeah, the, the, the feeling of, 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 of something burgeoning was, was, for me, was coming out of the clubs in Camden. So with, with um, A&M, when you signed to them in, in 93, how was that instigated? Did you have to do like a, like a show 
were you invited there to play or did they or, or what was the situation with with the signing process i got there we were actually, <laughs> we actually signed to to a&m back in 1991 but back then signing to a major record company was was not seen as cool at all uh, even though you know um blur and oasis signed to a, to a major via the indie you know, Blur mm. were essentially on EMI via Food Records, and Oasis were on Sony essentially via Creation. But but signing directly to a major would almost seem like, oh no, you're not cool. You're selling out straight away. You got to, you, at the time you had to have some indie credentials. So we signed to A and M, but we said to them, leave us alone for a year. Let us release three three singles on our own label. Let us make mistakes. So they gave us a load of money. Well, not a load of money. I not low compared to nowadays, but yeah. it was some money, enough money for us to release three singles on our own label, Boston Records, and to do some experimenting and, and to go on tour and to see how it all worked out. And then the whole idea was is that they um, then took us on for the for the for the album, and they said, "No, you can you can piss about for three singles, but then we're getting you for the album. You're going to do the album for us." But but yeah, I mean, we were courted. We we were courted quite a bit. It's quite it's hysterically. It's um, the the guy that came down. Um, we we had our own club called the Dodgy Club in Kingston um, because at the time as well uh, there was a thing called pay to play, which is if you wanted to play at a venue such as the Lady Owen Arms in Farringdon in London, which was a shithole of a venue. Sorry, I'm I'm swearing here, Chris, and I didn't ask if it was okay. For no, you. it's absolutely fine. It's yeah, absolutely fine. It's a shithole of a venue, and um, and we didn't know anyone in London really. You know, because we're from Birmingham, we're large, and we didn't really know anyone. But the the only way you could make any money from gigs is that they would give you a load of printed tickets. Because of course this was pre-internet or pre-mobile phones or anything, they would give you a load of printed tickets, and then there you go, sell those for whatever you want, and you take that money. So they wouldn't actually pay you any money to to, to do the gig, um, and we thought that was a bit of a rip-off, you know, because we how on earth were we going to afford to pay, uh, afford to play there? So we thought we'd do what our heroes did, and we set up our own residence. Um, you know, like the Who did um, at the Marquee or the Stones did at Eel Pie or whatever. Um, and we set up our own residency at a club called Bacchus Wine Bar in Kingston. And um, we did that every couple of weeks on a Thursday. And because King, and we chose Kingston specifically because it had loads of colleges and universities and polytechnics there. Uh, and we'd just go and fly post around there. And it was pretty much sold out from the first date we did because we didn't advertise it as dodgy play. We advertised it as the club. So we advertised all the bands that we were playing, made it look kind of cool. Straight away, tapped into that kind of audience, cool, slightly hedonistic, slightly hippie, slightly arsenic tentacles, that kind of audience who came down and, and loved it. Um, and people from those days, from 1990, the Dodgy Club is still in contact with us, you know. Some people are on Facebook. And what we said to record companies, is if you want to come and see the band, you've got to come to Kingston. Um, yeah, yeah. Kingston uh, watch us at our own club and um, we wouldn't have a guest list and they'd have to pay double on the door because um, <laughs> it was about having just a bit of an attitude as if we had a similar story when we um, when we had our publishing um, we didn't we asked for a certain amount of money and Virgin and BMG both said yeah we'll give you that amount of money and we didn't want any more because we knew we'd have to pay it back it was all advances so we got the head of BMG and the head of Virgin to play each other at Italian 90 football in, in the pub, in a local <laughs> pub. 
and whoever won was going to get our publishing. But as it turned out, it's a bit like Solomon's Wisdom, that um, the guy that did win from Virgin, who's now head of Universal, I think, <laughs> he's a big, massive, big wig guy, he won, and he went, great guys, and sped off in his sport car, sports car, and the guy from BMG sort of stayed behind and went, that was amazing. This is why I want to sign you, band, you guys. And I'm prepared to just have one of your bits of publishing just because I love him. We thought, oh, we really like him. You know, so we said, yeah, we'll sign with him then. <laughs> and the guy from Virgin was like, but I won the football. And we're like, yeah, that's not really legally binding, mate. So when did you sort of start um, treading your wares then in, on the, in the clubs and... and uh bars and whatnot with this lineup sort of 93 you know I'd, I'd been in lots of bands before but you know and i'd certainly gone up and down the country in vans a lot but thankfully when martin joined um and once we changed our name to gene and uh, we didn't have to do lots and lots of gigs we had yeah. a manager which really you know, i think we only did about nine uh before we were the interest started to happen and there was a couple of music journalists our manager had been a music journalist himself so it was it was so helpful to have an influential person that could bring other people down and i felt that we we had become good enough but we we were lucky enough to have the right contacts at that point and um, so we didn't do loads and loads and loads of shows in fact once the interest did start to we started to restrict we didn't overplay i remember doing things like strange gigs like the charlie chaplin in elephant and castle with, with gene and obviously we did the monarch i remember doing one gig in the monarch and camden i'd played there a lot with other bands but it was one of those gigs where the whole industry had come down to see us, all the a and men from every record company and every publishing company. And the whole place was absolutely rammed full of industry. And they didn't really clap as well. I thought we played well. <laughs> we were sort of quite spirited. But a and men, just, they just don't do it. <laughs> they just yeah. like, We thought, oh, we've blown it. <laughs> no, but, you know, I certainly pay my dues in other bands. But thankfully, with Gene, we, we just seemed to have it right. And there was, there was a feel about the band. And there was interest, and we didn't have to trawl up and down the country ten times before we got a record deal. I mean, the story of menswear is, is different, oh, could I say, in terms of like maybe what from what I've read, from what I've read, and obviously it's all true on the internet. Um, I mean, at the time when when, when you broke, I remember it vividly. Uh, you know, you broke, and the enemy and, and the melody maker were putting on the cover, and we had the top of the pops performance and things, but. I wanted to hear from your side of things. How, how the kind of, what was the spark of that band and how, how was it formed? It was, um, it was so quick. My God, it was quick. It was quick. <laughs> it, it happened quickly and it was over quickly. Um, I had been playing in groups. I'd moved to London in 94 and just been playing in lots of indie bands, trying to find a group that was, that was really good, that worked. And uh, I'd had a couple of friends in the Camden area that had, I used to travel down from where I used to live in Birmingham and just used to sort of spend weekends with them trawling about Camden as kind of people started to talk about clubs like Syndromes and uh, pubs like the Laurel Tree, which was like, um, had a blow up night, which was a big mod, sort of uh, modern soul R&B night upstairs in a pub in Camden. And so I used to sort of go there and you could feel this kind of this thing happening. I think the press called it, you know, new mod of new mod or whatever. And you could kind of feel bands, you know, 
forming and people talking about being groups and then modern life is rubbish came out i'd learned which kind of really set the template for loads of people myself included it was like all oh, right this is back to what i say this is a band about us now it's not an american group singing about alienation it's it's a british group singing about the brighton seafront and i know the brighton seafront i don't know a lot about alienation yet hmm. um and then separate to that johnny and chris had met uh and you know johnny's always johnny looked like a front man from the minute i saw him he's always looked like that and Chris was just this sort of gangly youth, very young, 16, I think, um, and came under the spell of this kind of nascent Britpop thing, I guess it was, Sweden, Sweden's f- f- first record and, and Modern Life is Rubbish. And they, Chris had just gone around telling everyone uh, that he could, that he was in a band called Menswear, <laughs> and then went out, went to festivals, blagged his way backstage, told everyone he was in a band called Menswear, met people. Uh, they met Stuart, the bass player, who had played, who'd been playing trumpet with Blur a little bit, and they they just all looked good. They all like had these had the mod suits on, and and the blag, and it was like they decided that after telling people they were in a band, they should probably form one, and um, and that's how they started. They had a drummer who was by all accounts a lovely dude, but just didn't really work out. And my friends who I'd been hanging about with in Camden said, "Oh, you know, this is this is group. They're going to get signed. Do you want to do you want to go and meet them?" And I was like, yeah, because that's all you ever wanted to do is get signed. That's, that's the big deal when you're in struggling groups. It seems like an impossible dream. So and I went to one rehearsal and wrote, well, not wrote, they'd written Daydreamer. So we played that the first rehearsal and um, a couple of other songs. And that was it. And I was like, OK, you're in the group. I had to fire the old manager. I remember that was my kind of baptism. <laughs> was, I had to, they had uh, the original manager was, wasn't the right man for the job. And so they sort of said, look, I think you're really good, but, but you've, got to, you've got to fire him for us. So that was kind of my, I had to, that was my initiation into the group was firing the rubbish manager. <laughs> and then I you're in the club. Face, yeah, I had to do it to his face in front of the rest of the band. I think he turned up with beer and biscuits at the end of the rehearsal. And it was like, oh, you know, when, you get, when you get pushed to the front of a, you know, there's a thing where there's like, like a row of people and all volunteers step forward and everyone else steps back apart from one person. And that was me. So, most, people, most people would just sign in or you know you just sort of uh, have a, a swear an oath or something but yeah you had something a bit more meaty to do yeah a, a little bit meaty but so that, i mean that was that was how we, and then uh, simon who'd been a guitarist in bands i knew in birmingham bumped into chris kind of sought chris out because he'd seen him in 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 music press going on about menswear chris and johnny were in the pulp do you remember the first time video so they kind of had a little bit of like a cool scene that they were in and mm. simon sought out chris and just said basically I'm the other guitarist in your band. And, I, and over many drinks, Chris was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then played him a bunch of songs. And Chris was like, oh my God, these songs are amazing. You have to be in the band. Turns out there were songs by Ocean Colour Scene that hadn't been released yet. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but you know, then again, by hook or by crook, that's what happens with groups, isn't it? If, if you see something you want to get involved in, yeah, that's how you get involved in it. And yeah, and that was, and that was it. A legend in her own lunchtime. It was, um, and then yeah, and then and then it capital I capital T all kind of started. 